Welcome to Count Me In with Del and Deanna. Today we feature a broad, thoughtful conversation with Dr. Ron Buckmeyer, Professor of Mathematics and Associate Dean for Curricular Affairs at Occidental College in Los Angeles, California. Ron was born in Grenada, grew up in the States, and earned his undergraduate master's and PhD degrees from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York. He studied applied mathematics and recently published Improving Applied Mathematics Education with Jessica Libertini in 2021. He has served as a program director in the NSF's Division of Undergraduate Education in the Washington, D.C. area. In this conversation, Ron talks about leaving the campground cleaner than you found it, the role of immigration in a professional life, the importance of funding, and expanding people through education and understanding. So please join us as we talk with Ron. Welcome to Count Me In. Thank you for joining us, Ron. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, what would you be doing? What, what are we pulling you away from? What would you be doing if you weren't here with us? I would be doing my associate dean stuff. Mm -hmm. My um, uh, sabbatical application is due tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Working on that. Um, yeah, just regular stuff. Uh -huh. Well, we like to start by asking you to tell us your story. And we hope that you'll tell us the whole story from little Ron all the way up to now. I was born in the Caribbean, little island of Grenada. It's in the West Indies, a couple hundred miles from the northern coast of South America. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Most Americans, I'm sure, could not find it on a map. And so, so yeah, I was born there. And then at age about 18 months, uh, I joined my parents who were already in the States where my father was getting his PhD at University of Massachusetts Amherst in food science and nutrition. And my parents divorced about seven years later. And uh, I lived with my dad and my dad moved around. So I was in um, Massachusetts for a while, then a suburb of Chicago. So my dad's claim to fame is he was on the team that invented the Captain Crunch Crunchberry. Uh, and we used to have, I mean, like boxes of Captain Crunch food, like the different flavors. Like he used that sort of testers for the cereal. Um, I remember that. That was uh, California. That was a uh, Chicago area, and then California. And then at age 10, um, my father did not want us going to high school in the United States. So we moved to Barbados and I was in Barbados from age 10 till 18. Um, and then. Do, do you uh, know why he didn't want you going to high school in the United States? Not exactly clear. I think, you know, just because um, we were, I mean, we already considered ourselves American. Um, it's only me and my sister. And yeah, he never really, I, it might've been that. And I think he wanted to get back to the Caribbean and, and yeah. So but we went to Barbados and the Barbados, Barbados is no longer, it's now a Republic, but it was, you know, it has a nickname, Little England. It's more British than the British as some sort of uh, post-colonial um, regions are. Um, so I wore a tie every day uh, for school and, um, their education system is built around basically high stakes exams at the end of the year, not the semester. And right, that determines whether you go to the next grade, they call them forms there. There's 
first and fifth form, and then where you do even bigger stakes, something things called O levels in different subjects, sort of like AP exams, except you do you know between six to you know twelve or thirteen. I think I did that many. And then after that, there's A levels, so ordinary levels and advanced levels. And of course, these were being British system. They're they're from Cambridge, you know. The exams come from England, and then they you know do the thing, and then they send them back to be graded. <laughs> I was one of the last years that would happen. Then the Caribbean islands sort of formed their own exam equivalent, and so my subjects were so I did O levels, and I did A levels, A levels. You generally do around three or four, and I did um, math, chemistry, physics, and I think advanced math. And after that, um, it's, so that was it. when I was in Barbados. I know how much more to get into this. I was I'm Grenadian, so I was in Barbados. If you do well on the the A level exams, you get what's called a national an island scholarship. If you get, you know, if you get one of the high scores or like A's mm-hmm. on all, all A which I did, but I didn't get an island scholarship because I wasn't a Barbadian. And everyone thought I was Barbadian because I was, had been Barbados chess champion for the last, you know, three or four years <laughs> before. And, you know, I'd been on TV. I'd won national sportsman award a couple of times. Um, so there's this big drama um, where people were sort of found out that, you know, I wasn't a legal immigrant, but I wasn't, I wasn't a real agent. Um, as they say in the accent. Um, but anyway, came up to the States. Because I had had A-levels, I was able to, so the I went to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York. And this was, as a physics major, this was a compromise between me and my father, because, well, he's paying for it because I didn't get an island scholarship. Because uh, he, he, I guess me, I, myself as well, thought, you know, I knew, so my favorite subject was chemistry. Um, math was my easiest subject. Uh, I liked physics because, you know, at a certain age, physics is cool because it sort of explains the universe. And, you know, if you do science fiction, if you read interested in science fiction, you know, physics is the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so the compromise was major in physics at an engineering school, because so do something practical. And immediately, my very first semester, I realized, so I was in, I was in honors physics, which is basically math. Um, and I realized all the best parts of physics are math. Um, <laughs> and physics is involved, is uh, the science of things that are way, way too small, you know, subatomic particles mm-hmm. or way, way, way too big, you know, you know, galaxies and stars and things. And you have to do these icky experiments where you have to get, you have to touch things. And if you're clumsy, you know, it never works out right. And, you know, it's, it's supposed to, you know, there's beautiful mathematical formulas for, for explaining phenomena. And then you go in the lab and your data never looks like it goes along with the law that you're trying to verify. So I immediately switched from physics to math. And at, math, and at, R, at RPI, you know, math is, it was really only applied math. It was, you know, it was, it, was, it was even then it was called mathematical sciences, but it was, you know, eventually, yeah, all the people were doing applied math. They had, you know, awards, grants from the Navy, the Army, there are all sorts of um, federal agencies. And so I found out that, to my amazing surprise, that 
they will pay you to do math over the summer as a student, um, <laughs> undergraduate research. And this was the greatest thing ever. Uh, I didn't know anything about that. So um, yeah, I, I sort of, I remember I played with, um, well, sorry, I did research on um, <laughs> hypergeometric functions with Professor Julian Cole in the math department. And so next, and so two years later, he, became, he was my, one of my PhD advisors. Um, so for freshman summer, did hypergeometric functions with him. Sophomore summer, I did, um, uh, wrote programs to visualize optimal ship hulls for his wife, Susan Cole. Um, and then in my third summer, summer between graduating and um, starting graduate school, I I had to oh I I had to, I did I did a summer I had to take two more classes to finish early or is it just one I think psych, I had to take psychology I remember at a community college over that summer um, and then I started in that fall also at RPI which is interesting because people say oh you should go to someplace else for graduate school I didn't know that was a thing like I knew who I was going to work work with it was going to be Julian and um, Don Schwendeman so I already knew and I figured. You know, they were, they were, I, I, did, I only applied, I think, to RPI and maybe one other place. Mm-hmm. Um, and RPI offered more money. So I was like, I'm staying. And so then I was at RPI, got my PhD five years later, picked up my master's, you know, on the way. Mm-hmm. It's just sort of graduate work. Um, so, so while I was, the, that sort of summer, that's like, I guess that's 89 to 90. Uh, when I was in graduate school, lots of things. I did lots of interesting things. I Early on, I realized I was gay. Um, mm-hmm. And I immediately uh, became president of the Gay Association. Got put on way, way too many uh, diversity committees. I co-founded the um, Women's Student Association at RPI. Because also RPI had this issue where I think when they reached, I think, 16% women on campus, they were very happy. Um, so they were, yeah, it was a very male-dominated place. Is that how you ended up helping form the Women's Association? Because Yeah, me and another graduate student, yeah. Mm-hmm. What else? Oh, right, I also formed a radio, station, a radio show called Homo Radio 91.5 WRPI, <laughs> just still in existence. Every Sunday morning, 12 to 2. Um, what did you talk about on the radio show? This was um, sort of news. Yeah, just, yeah. So this, you know, this is 1990. So this is, there's no Google. There's no World Wide mm-hmm. Web. This is, so getting information out to folks is a thing. It was actually sort of half um, sort of sort of lesbian folk music uh, or just sort of gay artists. And there's this... Um, long-running radio show called This Way Out, which sort of summarizes international gay um, or LGBT uh, news stories. And so it was that, and that was that's actually how I started because I had connected with um, the producer of that and was sort of trying to figure out a way to get it on more radio stations. So then I graduated in 94. Oh, interestingly, 91, I had, uh, I, w- I met my partner, now husband, uh, because, so back then, the internet was so small that when 
you're a gay person and you're coming to someone's city, you'd say, hey, I'm a gay person coming to your city. Can all, can all the gay people on the internet, let's all get together. And, you know, sort of like about 15 of us who had access to the internet because, you know, we were, he was a grad student at UCLA in math and I was a grad student. I mean, because that's only people who had, you know, access to the internet, really. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I mean, I've had, I've had an email address since like 1988, mm-hmm. And yeah, so we got together then. And so I was sort of um, bi-coastal, so we were long distance. So I would visit LA more often because it's better than coming to Troy, New York. And one time while I was uh, visiting LA, I went out to this sort of uh, gay movie night and met the chair of the Occidental College Math Department, who was uh, gay. And he said, "Oh, you know, if you you know if you're graduating soon, I think this is like ninety two, ninety three. Mm-hmm. If you're graduating soon, you should think about we have this we have this thing called a minority postdoctoral scholar." Uh, in residence, and it comes with a rent-free residence. So that stuck in my head. And, wow. Uh, so when I did finish, I applied to that, much to the chagrin of my advisors, because they were, you know, I my thesis was in computational aerodynamics. And so they were all, they were writing letters for me to go to um, government labs. But, you know, my boyfriend was in LA, my sister was in LA, because that's why I visited first time and it was a rent-free house um so i got the i got the postdoc which is really sort of about showing people who had been at you know r1 places sort of what a liberal arts college was like mm-hmm. so you only had to teach one course but I, I hadn't taught at all before mm-hmm. because in graduate school you know it's always a more prestigious thing if you're a research assistant it's supposed to be being a teaching assistant so i think i'd like TA'd like one semester of calculus and that was it mm-hmm. um and um so that that was it was good because I learned about teaching in those two years and I liked it and uh they liked me so I got switched over to tenure track so who stands out to you as someone who helped you um you know make those transitions figure out who you are help you be um you know, find yourself as a young man. I went to the, I went to this public school called Cumbermere. Um, it's, it is um, older than the United States, founded in 1637. <laughs> um, me and Rihanna are some of its alumni. <laughs> Rihanna Fengibra. <laughs> and, but it's, but it's, it's not considered the, the sort of elite uh, public school in the island. Um, so anyway, it was a Cumbermere and, Mr. Barrett uh, was very enthusiastic about, about chemistry. Um, and so like a bunch of us were, we sort of just hung out together, a uh, bunch of sort of students um, and sort of uh, did O-levels, did A-levels. The interesting thing about in, in Barbados, and it's funny you mentioned the community, is that education is very prized in the Caribbean. I And I think that, so like, as I said, there's exams at the end of the year, which determine whether you go to the next form or the next grade. Um, but at the end of each semester, there are, you get sort of these report cards and there's sort of like this book that you get and it sort of has your um, scores and your, you know, what rank you are in the class. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're just, you know, riding the bus, going home on the day you have your report card, just random strangers will just ask to see 
your your book. And you know, mine would always be, you know, first, 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 third, first. Um, I could never draw a second. I'll, I never could get a first in biology. Just could not do it. <laughs> I remember sort of people would like neighbors would, you know, ask to see my book and they'd be like, okay, you know, keep on, you know. I remember you had all these first last time. So, you know, don't be, you know, don't be slacking, et cetera. So I think there is sort of this community wide prizing of education, you know, at the, at the end of the year when, you know, the stress is incredibly high. There's, there's always stories of, you know, kids that just sort of just, you know, collapse because you have to do all these exams in your subjects. And if you don't do well, then, you know, you have to repeat the grade, uh, the form. And yeah, so, and so there's sort of community-wide sort of acknowledgement that this is happening at the end of the, of the year. So I think partly that sort of being in an area where, and of course, Barbados is, you know, 90 something percent people who look like me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I do think being in that kind of um, milieu, education being prized and sort of it not being unusual or um, a rarity that's, uh, you know, that people would, people who look like me would succeed in whatever subject they want to succeed in mm-hmm. um, helped me um, sort of, you know, bolster my own self-worth. I think when mm-hmm. I was in sort of places where, you know, that might not necessarily be the case. Well, there was still this notion that, you know, STEM courses are hard, but Mr. Barrett made it seem as if it was not, I mean, he had high standards. That was not an unusual thing that people would succeed in this class. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't, and the group of us that did that, um, so like, so, so for example, many times people, like when you chose O-levels, you know, they would, not everyone would do O-levels in every subject. You'd only just sort of do O-levels in subjects where you thought you would actually sort of get a, a, a passing grade in. Um, and so like, the teachers would recommend, you know, okay, you should do, yes, you should do an O-level in this subject, or you should do an O-level in that subject. Um, and so the the group of students who did the O-levels at A-levels in all the STEM subjects, um, it was sort of like three, was five of us, and there were like three guys and two girls. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like a, it wasn't completely gendered, which is mm-hmm. interesting as well. Mm-hmm. You mentioned how in Barbados, 90% of the people looked like you. And I suspect that since you've left Barbados, that has not been the case. So I wonder if you can kind of compare and contrast those two situations, which you had no control over. Right. I don't really think of it as being uncomfortable, but you definitely notice, right, when Mm -hmm. you're the only dark-skinned person in the room. Um, Like, you know, when I was at the World Junior Chess Championship or, you know, the, you know, the British Championship. Uh, so, yeah, so from age about 13 to about 16, I would basically travel to other countries playing chess. Um, at least, like, basically, my, I would spend my summer doing that. Um, so I went to, like, Finland and New York a couple times, London many times. And so, so yeah, so... There aren't that many people that look like me that play chess at those um, uh, stages, but you know, you notice. But I, I didn't really feel uncomfortable. I, you know, I was. You're. It's a competition, right? It's a tournament, so you do what you need to do. And the unusual part there was in Barbados. You know, I was like, you know, 
five-time defending junior champion and you know eventually was the national champion as well so it's 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 the difference between sort of being the overwhelming favorite uh because like you know i haven't lost the regular game in you know two years or something mm-hmm. and then going to a place where you know i'm the lowest ranked player mm-hmm. um so there's the discomfort because of that not because of my race or ethnicity mm-hmm. um and i think sort of i maybe that having that experience sort of in the sort of you know, amateur sort of um, hobby arena would then prepare me for, you know, uh, at RPI being in, uh, you know, uh, intro calculus class of, you know, 250 or 300 students. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't really see anyone look like me. But then again, because I had done A-levels, all this material was completely new. A-levels are really strange. They're like, the topics are, are weird hodgepodge of like, all of undergraduate mathematics are like, like I, like I knew uh, differential integral calculus, but um, we didn't do things like, there, there, was just, there were just weird topics, oh, they seemed weird to me, that were in uh, intro calculus um, that I hadn't seen. You know, just, just the weird sort of um, calculation-based things like related rates or, which is, you know, so this, I was like, oh, it's just a chain rule. It's like, why, what's this? I mean, what? Anyway, so there's all this sort of focus on calculation-based activities in sort of the standard calculus class. Um, but so there, my prior experience sort of allowed me to sort of um, supplant any feelings of um, alienation that I, I might have had in that arena, mm-hmm. I suppose. How did you get involved in chess? Um, that's a good question. I think um, I just remember there was a group at Cumbermere. I know they were after we stayed after school, and we just so started playing. And I think there was a scholastic league as well. And so um, you know we would play against other schools. Mm-hmm. But you know, I just I just like the game. It's it's um it's fun, it's strategy. I wanted to ask you a question from early on. You talked about your dad leaving Grenada, going to UMass to study food science and nutrition. This was in the 60s. Like that guy had some courage. Tell me about mm-hmm. him. Tell me about that. Yeah, I guess that's a good point, really. Yeah, exactly. That's mid mid to late 60s. And I don't think that, yeah, I don't think that's that unusual. As I, as I said, in the Caribbean, education is a thing. I think all my uncles have PhDs. A lot of my cousins are either doctors or have PhDs. And well, but I guess what's unusual is that for my dad, well, I guess he's the third, exactly. So his older brothers would have already gotten PhDs. So he it probably was a thing. But like, I don't think my, my grandfather was a, a uh, pharmacist, so he would have gotten a degree. But I don't think I don't think in his family the notion of getting advanced degrees would have been a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but his kids, it was a thing. Or he insisted because, like, my dad's two older brothers uh, definitely got um, doctorates. I actually I think one's a medical doctor and one's a PhD, and then my dad got a PhD. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly right. It's actually, yeah, it's, it's the youngest that did not. Yeah, did not get it. I think about it. So, it's um, so yeah, he, he, but he, he just, right. He made it seem as if that was a thing, you know, just, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
It's not just a Caribbean thing. It's a Buckmeyer thing. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Can I take you back for a minute to, to college? Um, you, sometime in your education, you came out, and I think that was in college. Yeah, you have been very active in LGBTQ rights, and mm-hmm. you uh, were one of the uh, starters of Spectra, I believe. Um, yeah. And I'm just wondering where that came from, where that where that strength. I mean, you you were on the radio, you said, um, um, and very out and very public, and that was wonderful. But it was not an easy time to be out and gay. And um, I'm wondering if you had role models, if you uh, had others who were supporting you at the time um, that made you feel comfortable in who you were, which is fantastic, but it's, it's unusual. Yeah, it is unusual. Um, I think, yeah, and I, I, I don't actually know why I didn't, I didn't have a long period of, Oh, I think I might be gay. Oh, I think I need to hide this thing because I wasn't really anything. I wasn't straight or gay before then. It was just like, you know, I was so busy sort of doing all my chess thing or all my academic stuff. And then, I mean, then sort of when I realized I just sort of came out and it just, it seemed natural to me. And so I was like, why are all these people tripping? Um, and so, like, <laughs> so, um, and Oh, what are the what are the things I need to do to sort of make this not be a thing? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like that's why I said, like you know, and I, and I knew it was a thing because I knew it was a, I knew it was difficult for other people because, as I said, I immediately became president of the um, college association and LGBT association, and you know. Uh, before I came out, you know, there was, there was always sort of these, you know, jokes and negative associations with the college group of, you know, with my friends. And then I was like, oh, oops, Rod is now the president of that thing. And so, <laughs> I, you know, stop making those jokes. And then I, um, you know, I got elected, I think, to be a state uh, 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 student senator, grad student mm-hmm. senator. And and that was, it was sort of part, I mean, I just, if I think... So I, I think one of my mottos is um, the Boy Scout motto, uh, you know, uh, leave the campground cleaner than you found it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so I just always think that, you know, if, if the campground is dirty, <laughs> let's clean it up. Or if, you know, if something is, something is messed up here, then let's try and fix it. So that's why sort of being a student senator and, you know, forming Homo Radio and then, you know, forming the Women's Student Association. That, that was sort of all of a piece. Uh, and, right, I don't know if you, if you even know, also in 1991, I created something called the Queer Resources Directory. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, I mean, I, I, it's sort of comical now, but it really was this desire to put all the, que- all the gay stuff on the internet in one place. Um, <laughs> it's 1991, um, you know, there's no World Wide Web. And most inter- online interaction is through things called, um, I don't know if you guys know about these things, um, me- bulletin boards, message boards, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. sort of digital. And sort of what would happen is that um, this is why FAQs, frequently asked questions, became a thing because di- different groups of people, you know, you have what's called newbies, people who are new to the, to the community. 
and they always come in and sort of ask, you know, the question that everyone asked, but have been asked, you know, every wave before that, any, every other new person that came into the community and said, like, like you know, like, where are the bathrooms? Or, or what does this sign mean? Or, <laughs> and so, and it's like, you know, there's always like, right, read the bleeping FAQ, right? These are questions <laughs> that people ask when you get here. So, and there's sort of stuff like, you know, when is, you know, when is Pride Month? Why do we celebrate Pride in June? You know, just basic questions about things that people don't know. And right, there's no Google, there's no websites that have this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so the idea was like, well, let's collect all the stuff that people are always asking um, and providing resources for people who are, you know, in the middle of someplace remote. And yes, that was that was the point of the QRD was to sort of be this, and I'm a little bit of a pack rat myself anyway. So just sort of keeping information I thought someone in the future might find useful. Um, mm-hmm. So it's just, that's just sort of my thing is sort of providing resources for people who come after me so that they don't have to, you know, have the same um, negative experiences that I might have had. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and that's, so that's sort of what Spectra is about. You know, Spectra is the Association for LGBT Mathematicians and it sort of um, grows out of uh, having uh, L- receptions for LGBT people at the joint math meetings, you know, from uh, 1996 onwards. And I, I don't know if you want me to tell the whole story about um, how uh, Colorado passed an anti-gay initiative mm-hmm. and um, joint math meetings were scheduled to be in Denver one year. And um, some very brave uh, mathematicians wrote to the boards of MAA and AMS and said, why would any LGBT mathematician, you know, feel comfortable going to Denver when, you know, they literally just voted to eliminate any civil rights that gay people have in this state. And amazingly, the board said, oh yeah, you're right. Let's, let's move the JMM, which is the mm-hmm. largest math association <laughs> annually and is planned, you know, five to six years in advance. And then amusingly, the only place that they could get after canceling to, you know, several tens of thousand dollars um, fines, um, the only place they could get was San Francisco, which is sort of <laughs> just too perfect. Um, and so, of course, um, San Francisco, which is, you know, a cool place to be, but many uh, LGBT mathematicians came to support uh, mm-hmm. the decision and sort of uh, to uh, go to joint math meetings. And so then it was thought, well, we should have a reception for the people who have come and it became an annual thing then so that LGBT mathematicians would gather. And what's interesting about that is that there's there's really two receptions. There's a on-site reception for people who are comfortable sort of being in the same space that they're being professional like mm-hmm. as, mm-hmm. and there's an always an off-site reception for people who sort of want to keep their professional mathematician life mm-hmm. and their sort of private LGBT life separate. Interestingly, probably for the first time this in Seattle in 22, we will, we think the offsite reception is now a vestigial thing. And that basically, I mean, because it's, there's been very few people going to the offsite reception. People have just sort of felt comfortable, you know, you know, doing their thing at, um, at, at JMM, which I think is a good thing, right? That's, that's sort of wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But there was a place for the other because in our book, Count Me In, the chapter on Spectra, one of the authors wrote about taking a position at a Catholic institution and how 
this was going to play out. And you could sort of feel that, you know, just even reading it that. Oh, yeah. This, this yeah, was something. Yeah, exactly. This was a thing. I was just realizing when, as you were answering Deanna's question about how you started with the FAQs and you wanted to educate people, we just so happened to talk about that after you talked about the Caribbean influence on education, emphasis on education, the Buckmeyer emphasis on education. Of course, your involvement is on educating people, bringing people along. It's who mm-hmm. you are. You can't help yourself. <laughs> anyway, just yeah, an observation. One of the questions we like to ask is, um, could you describe the challenge and how you faced it? Before there was gay marriage, there was no way if someone was from a different country and uh, their partner was of the same sex, there was no sort of way for immigration law to reflect that. So, of course, I, you know, formed a, there's something called um, the Lesbian and Gay Immigration Rights Task Force, um, Lagertif. <laughs> um, but I, I helped form the Los Angeles chapter in, I don't know, mid-90s, and we just called it Immigration Equality. Um, and eventually the National Association liked our name so much, they, they renamed themselves as Immigration Equality. And so they were, and their whole thing was to try to pass this, um, this uh, bill called Uniting, I think it's Uniting All, All Families Act, um, to, which was basically, I mean, all you need is just a little tweak in the law to just sort of say, you know, Americans can, instead of just sponsoring uh, uh, heterosexual partners for uh, green card status, if they want to live together, then just to make it be opposite, same-sex couples as well. Um, and so I, I don't know if, I overcame that challenge, but I helped. Um, I helped immigration. So that by right, that problem got solved with uh, marriage equality becoming the law of the land. I also sorry. I also organized <laughs> about uh, same sex marriage as well. You know, through the nineties and the, and the two thousands. Uh, but my own situation actually was resolved because um, everyone else in my family are U.S. citizens or permanent residents. Um, but because I, because no one thought to apply for my immigration change until after I was age 18. And after age 18, it takes a really, really long time. Like it took until, like, that, that's sort of one reason why I sort of stayed in college and sort of kept on getting degrees because I kept mm-hmm. on waiting for my immigration, you know, number to come up. It, it took about 10 years. Mm-hmm. And so, so my situation got resolved in that I got a green card through my family, but if I didn't have a family member who was already always, always a green card member, I didn't know that, I didn't know how long the process was going to take or if it would ever even sort of resolve, which is why I sort of went into activism around gay marriage and about around immigration rights for same-sex couples. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually those things, did, I, I'm not saying that I resolved those situations. <laughs> I'm just saying th- those situations did get resolved, you know, and um, basically, in 2008, with um, California legalizing same-sex marriage, and then really, it's really it was, it was 2013 when the Supreme Court ruled that uh, the Federal Defense of Marriage Act was unconstitutional because this is because immigration being able to be being able to sponsor same-sex couple for fe- for federal immigration purposes was the federal government had to recognize same-sex marriages. 
other states had been recognizing marriages for a while, but it didn't take until 2013 was actually the solution of that. <laughs> the problem that I tried to solve when I formed the LA chapter of immigration equality in probably 93, maybe. Yeah, I think I did it before I got my PhD. Mm-hmm. That was, yeah, 20 years. Well, thank you for all the work that you've done for, for all these great causes. I certainly appreciate how you've left the, the campground cleaner for the younger kids. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell us about what you do now, because you are in, a, in an academic or a administrative position. Yeah, so I'm currently Associate Dean for Curricular Affairs um, at Occidental College, small liberal arts college in Los Angeles, um, also known as Barack Obama's first alma mater. Um, and I like it because, again, it's about leaving the, the campground cleaner. Um, it's about trying to have academic policies and um, curriculum that uh, help students uh, actualize their you know, dreams and um, uh, desires for degree programs. Um, and, and, you know, and just trying to make things, a lot of times there's a lot of exceptions, you know, and that exceptions are good, but not everyone can even have the um, wherewithal to realize, I mean, they just see the policy. They don't necessarily see that, oh, you know, yes, this is a policy, but maybe if I ask nicely, the policy won't apply to me. And that actually does happen, especially at small liberal arts colleges. Mm-hmm. Um, but not everyone knows that they can even mm-hmm. ask. They, they, they see the policy and they say, oh, well, that means I can't do this thing. It's like, oh, well. And, um, and so really recognizing that um, policies need to be clear. And if there is an exception to the policy, then that exception should also be clearly noted so that everyone can have the same access to the same opportunities by knowing uh, the policies, policies being clear and exceptions to the policy also being clear. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, then there's also just sort of something, sometimes things aren't written down. <laughs> like um, uh, we, it, I don't know if it's only a math thing, but I think um, it might just be an academic thing where it's like, oh, you know, we, the thing, the thing we do for students is so magical. You know, we can't really sort of express it as something that can be measured. <laughs> um, it's, it's, you know, we're, we're teaching, we're like, we're teaching students how to think. We're not, we're not giving them any particular <laughs> skills, uh, any, any sort of innumerable skills uh, mm-hmm. that can then be assessed later. And, and I have very little countenance of that. I think if, if it's something that you are stating is a benefit to someone, then I believe you can come up with a metric to um, document this benefit that you are allegedly providing to your students. Um, and so, and, and I think, it, it, I understand it can be difficult, but when, but when you have, when you articulate things that are, Squishy. I mean, and that, right, it offends me as a mathematician, right? <laughs> that we can't, that you, that you people are saying that you can't write down clear definitions of things that we can then that other people can look at and determine whether you know the condition has been met or not. Um, 
So I do think, and I've noticed this in the past, that I do think mathematicians make really good administrators <laughs> uh, because I think we have a, a penchant for clarity and we have a either impatience or um, reluctance to have things not be clear. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and, so I, mm-hmm. and a lot of times people just sort of like to, you know, like to do what they do and, and sort of like to say, you know, this is what, this is what we think what we're doing has an effect on, but they're not, they're not actually being clear about what that is. And yeah, I, I just, I don't, I don't think that's necessary. Um, I think things can be assessed. I think things should be assessed because the clearer things are articulated, that means the more people can have access to understand what's going on. If you're not from, if you're not from academia and you're just sort of entering into the space and people say, oh yeah, you should do this thing because you know, it teaches you how to think and then you'll get really good jobs afterwards. It's like, well, how, who are you? Why should I be trusting you? Like, um, but, if you but if you can actually say, you know, students who major in math, um, you know, their average um, starting salary is $20,000 and the average starting salary of students who major in other things, that's an actual measurable fact that, that it can be convincing to you know, a, a student or, or more importantly, a student's parents who are paying this money to send their student and to also convince them that, right? Like, you know, you don't, students don't have to be an engineer. They don't have to be a doctor. You know, they, they can act, they can, you may not know what people do with math degrees, but we can tell you that people who get math degrees actually do go on to, you know, are more likely to have an average salary that's higher than students who don't do math. So I think making things clearer is a way of how I think of being sort of inclusive and equitable. That's why I see my administrative role. Well, I was going to ask a question about how you saw your mathematical training helping prepare you for your administrative role, but I will not ask that question now. I will say that you remind me of Lloyd Douglas um, in his podcast interview. He talked about the universality of mathematics Mm. the same way that you are. But before we get to our rapid fire, I do want to ask you one question. You are on the go. You are actively involved at Occidental and in shaping many people's lives for good. And what are you doing to take care of you? I don't know if I do a great job balancing. I, I do. Um, so I, I, I sort of, I, I have a personality where um, I don't really get upset or bothered by the fact that I have too much work because um, I know it's too much. I know it's more work than one person can do. I'm fine with that. I'll, I will just do the amount of work that I can do. And I'm fairly confident the amount of work that I do is at least as much as any other person doing this job or jobs could do. And so if someone says, oh, well, you're not doing enough work, I'd be like, really? Okay, get someone else to do this then. If you really, <laughs> if you really think that someone else who could be doing this job or these jobs better than I can, um, then have at it. Um, so that doesn't really bother me. Um, so I don't really feel bad about then sort of, you know, finding time to do stuff for me, which would be things like, you know, playing tennis, um, spending time with my partner, um, and especially sort of in uh, reading, reading for fun. Um, and then, and especially in the pandemic, um, having spent so much um, time together with my partner, we've sort of found um, 
sort of things that we can do together. Like we we just we now we just reached our um, one year anniversary of, of doing the New York Times crossword puzzle every day. Um, and I think we're, we're now at like 371, I think, 371 days. Um, so that was, some, that was something we didn't do before, but it's, it's, it's really helpful. I mean, you know, it's not, it doesn't take that long. Depends on the week I and mean, depends on the day of the week. You know, Monday, you know, it takes five minutes. You know, Sunday takes half an hour. Um, and you me, have you really gotten better in a year? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Have you? Oh yeah, yeah. Our average time is definitely because there's this whole app, and it and it, you know, and it tells you sort of you know how long you take, and typically, because also what happens is that it's it, it's really interesting actually. It's a whole separate thing which I was not aware of. You know, crosswords that there's there's words that sort of come up. There's clues. Um, there's a whole. I, 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 I shouldn't really be that surprised. You know, every sort of hobby has its own sort of culture and norms and so do crossword puzzles um and yeah so yeah that, that's what it's sort of interesting to find that out yeah so we definitely are getting better um i mean not always uh we're, 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 our time is not it's not a monotonic function decreasing but <laughs> de- definitely more often than not we either get you either get the snail or you get the lightning bolt i mean we get the lightning <laughs> bolt more often than not and also um uh, the, I guess what you call it, the exercise monitor thing. So I have to do 10,000 steps, you know, every day. So that means you can't just, especially in, in Zoom times, you know, have multiple hours in a row, just Zoom, um, and just sort of making sure that you get 10,000 steps a day. And also even more importantly, not more importantly, but also the 250 steps an hour. So that means you sort of can't be sedentary for more than, an hour um, before you have to sort of get up. And I, and I was, I'll just, you know, tell people in a meeting, it's like, oh, I have to get up and do my steps now because we've been talking here for 45 minutes. And uh, yeah. Before you tell us, yes, you need your 250 steps. Can we ask you a few rapid fire questions? Sure. When you wake up in the morning, what do you look forward to about your professional day? Um, I look forward to so I'm one of uh, three associate deans and we sort of work together as a team to um, help our boss, who is the dean of the college, um, basically run the academic affairs. And so it's it's fun to work with the others because <laughs> I don't know if you guys are in administration, but there's always something new. <laughs> And you never know what it's going to be. Um, and so, but, you know, and it might not come to me, it might come to one of them, but we sort of deal with it as a, as a trio. So I like that. Um, I like working with a team to try to um, uh, make things better at the college every day. Uh, when you need to energize yourself, what's your go-to song to put on? Oh, this is funny. When um, I first met my husband, I had this thing where I had to listen to a Mariah Carey song every single day. Um, and I've grown out of that. Um, it's not, definitely, not, definitely not every single day. Um, but that was, um, I, I like using uh, sort of pop icons as a, a way of organizing as well. Like in the 90s, I used to... Um, be in something called the Association to Protect Madonna from Nuclear War. It's the idea that wherever Madonna is at any one time must be a nuclear-free zone within five miles. 
So it's this, I, it's this mathematical idea, right? So you don't you never know where Madonna could be. So basically, everywhere has to be nuclear free because Madonna must be free from a nuclear war. Um, but my I, really my song now is really I'm more into sort of um, uh, ambient, sort of upbeat. So I just got my I just got my Spotify year long thing, and my I think my song of the year was was this uh, song by uh, Fortet, uh, F O R U R T E T. I think it's called 2017. <laughs> so, so ambient stuff with a beat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, third rapid fire. Where's a place that you really, really enjoy? A place I really, really enjoy? Um, place in the world? Mm-hmm. Can be in the world, yes. In your heart, it can be, yes. Yeah. Um, we like Hawaii, the big island of Hawaii. Um, it's beautiful. And um, the last trip we took right before um, the end of the world or pandemic uh, was the Canary <laughs> Islands. Uh, my husband likes uh, succulents and there are, you know, there are plants that are only found uh, on the Canary Islands. Nice. Uh, so, yeah. Canary, yeah. Islands in general, you know. <laughs> Very nice. Okay. What's on your desk that would surprise us? Um, maybe this <laughs> it's surprising. It's a little, what is it? Though? It's a rainbow thingamajig that looks like a little, molecule toy. It looks like, yeah, so it's sort of, but it's rainbow. So it's, yes. yeah, that, that's a little surprising or yeah. Other <laughs> knickknacks I have around here. Oh, uh, and big oxy pillow. Yeah, big oxy pillow. That's about it. I often have lots of candy, but I've um, I put it outside instead. <laughs> that's that's the lure for the for the office hours to get students. Oh, good. Yeah. Okay, last rapid fire in a single sentence, Rowan. What would you say to a person considering pursuing mathematics? I would right. I would encourage people to think of mathematics as a tool to um, describe the world or um, investigate patterns or structures, um, and that, um, you should, you should feel that there are other people who want to help you and support you in whatever way you'd like to interact with the mathematics community. Well, Ron, I've seen you at at, uh, national math meetings for years, and I've never taken the opportunity to get to know you better. And I really appreciate you being on our podcast today and and telling us your story and, and chatting with us for a while. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for asking me. Thanks. Well, I'm so happy to get a chance to talk with Ron. Uh, Really, I have seen him at national meetings for a number of years and never sat down and chatted with him. It was very interesting. What did you pick up from our interview, Della? Well, one of the first things I picked up on, and I don't believe any person we've interviewed has emphasized this, is the role of immigration in the life of mathematicians and people in general. I mean, it he said the way he described it was my immigration has always been complicated. Mm-hmm. And he talked about how this affected his education as a young person. Again, though, we did hear the emphasis on how funding matters. He talked about being at RPI at Rensselaer 
And he said this fun opportunity that you could actually spend a summer thinking about mathematics and getting paid for it. Mm -hmm. But then the offer from Occidental College included a rent-free house. This mattered to him. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I took the most away is he is about expanding people. If I had to describe Ron Buckmeyer in a single sentence, it would be Ron Buckmeyer expands people. And the way he does this is through education. And for things that were really close to his heart, in particular, educating people on the gay community, he brought Mm -hmm. a beautiful spirit of education and helped people understand what was really involved and what the stakes were. Mm -hmm. And also something else I learned from this is Ron was willing to put himself out there. Like, for example, he decided to go to a chess club and then... That led to him traveling all over the world as a young man. And then that uh, acquainted him with, as he put it, looking around and people not looking like him. Mm -hmm. So later when he was at RPI, he was comfortable with that. Also, when he went to visit his sister, he put himself out there in an internet group. He went to a movie, met the chair of Occidental. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, he was willing to take on just, you know, day-to-day events. And that ended up profoundly shaping his life. Mm-hmm. I, I especially loved uh, the Boy Scout motto that he keeps, the leave the campground cleaner than you left it, because it seems to be something he has been working on his whole life. Uh, from a serial tester of Captain Crunch to a <laughs> Barbadian chess champion to a leader for LGBT rights and, and now a, a, an associate dean at Occidental. Um, It's a great career path. Anyway. Well, thanks so much for joining us. And we look forward to seeing you again. And until then. We're counting you in. Yes. Um, Goodbye. Count Me In with Della Indiana is produced by the talented Aiden Martin. Music created by Casey Fenster. And podcast imaged by Victoria Robinson. Casey Fenster, and podcast image by Victoria Robinson.